Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We are so glad to have you here with us today. I am joined today by Jason McNamara as our co-host. And we have as our guest today, Colonel Jeffrey Yarvis uh, from Darnell Army Medical Center down at Fort Hood. Jeffrey's been with us before and talks very candidly about PTSD in varying perspectives. And today we're going to take a look at the female veterans, the specific issues that they have, as well as the intergenerational secondary PTS that goes with family members, and really take a differing perspective and, once again, a dose of reality with what occurs and what can be aided by good treatment. And I know Jeff will bring us along with what good treatment means and and how to seek out different treatment if your particular uh, course of uh, action is not working for you. So without further ado, Jeff, I'd love if you could give us a little background on you, and then we'll dive right into our topic. So welcome to Military Network Radio. Thanks for having me, Linda. Again, I really enjoy being here, and uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, This is a topic that's, of course, near and dear to me. I may have said before that it's not just a vocation, it's a personal mandate because so many of us struggle with these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you a perspective of where I'm coming from, um, I was briefly enlisted in, in the infantry and then I was an armor officer uh, for six years and have a sense of the Army from the line side and the number of exercises and separations that come with that. And then I've transitioned uh, over the last 25 years to being a mental health provider. Um, specifically a social worker, and have had multiple deployments and uh, overseas TDYs uh, to probably the total of about 1,400 days apart from family. And so both professionally and personally, I've experienced the kinds of things that families struggle with, and I hope to kind of give everybody a a glimpse into uh, the subtleties of that, what both men and women have said to me that they've struggled with, um, and really take you away from thinking about just the pathology of PTSD, and really it's how it plays out when we come home and when we're together and when we're trying to do our jobs, both in theater and in garrison. That's perfect, because I think that those examples that you provide often give people a glimpse into things that they can relate to a lot more closely than, as you said, the pathology of PTSD. So take a look at... Um, You mentioned to me a a phrase when we talked before about you can't find the fever if you don't take the temperature. What did you mean by that? Uh, It's a twofold message. One, for all providers out there, um, including not just mental health providers, but school teachers, people who work in shelters, people who work uh, with men and women in advocacy roles, uh, people who work in clinical settings. If, If people are cognizant of the fact that you may be experiencing something related to deployment or military service that's really helpful in changing the way they view you, your family members, and your children. Um, because often they think of, of people who may present a certain way uh, of being from perhaps a broken home or having difficulties with a psychiatric issue. And if they would just ask the question, 
Have you or any of your family members deployed? It can make a world of difference in the kind of questions they'll ask and the way of thinking about a particular individual. You know, I think those foregone conclusions or the prejudgments or, or any of that first impression thing, you're absolutely right. Because when people are put in little boxes, that's where they tend to stay. And what you're saying is open up, listen, ask the right questions. I think it's very important. So talk about the importance of obtaining treatment, help, therapy, um, support as soon as possible. Because I think we have a lag in time where people may have had a bad experience or a less than optimal experience is probably a better way to put it. And they give up. And I would really like you to address the fact that, you know, not everything is a perfect fit and how to go about making sure that you do go seeking help. And if you could also add to that, why it's important not to let it become chronic. Great comment. Um, And I like the term fit that you use. It is like trying on shoes and so you don't always get the right fit. Um, And so it's very, very important. Um that you reach out to people and you and you let them know you're struggling. And if they don't seem to understand what's going on with you, then talk to somebody else. Um, this is not unlike sitting with somebody of a different orientation, uh, cultural background, um, persuasion, whatever it might be. The, the provider may not always be real sensitive to the differences in you. And, and frankly, even if I had a twin brother out there, my experiences would be different than his. And so none of us are issued an M1A1 crystal ball and know what's going to go on with you when you sit in our office. And I think sometimes there's this assumption, just like with marriages, that there's some magical thinking going on. There's also an interplay between the warrior ethos and help-seeking, this idea that we're not allowed to be sick um, or even that it's wrong wrong to seek mental health. And I think we've come a long way since the time that Patton smacked a soldier um, and, and many of our veterans have paved the way, but I think if you still still sit down with veterans uh, of various eras, you'll find out that there's still this idea that we can't talk about this. And part of that is an attempt to protect each other uh, and the people we love from the things we've seen and heard and how could they possibly understand. But it's, it's also important for providers to have what... Uh, uh, of cultural competence, and I'd say there's four levels of that. There's unconscious incompetence, number one, which is where you don't know what you don't know so you can get your butt in a jam. And then there's conscious incompetence, which is probably, you know, I know how to do my job, but I don't really know this population, and hopefully those providers ought not do it too much. You know, I'm not an eating disorders expert, for example, so I could probably treat it and I'm licensed to, but I probably should seek supervision or not do it if if it's not something I'm an expert in. And... um and then finally, most of us will reach the third stage, which is conscious competence, where we know what we know and we feel pretty comfortable with maneuvering within the things that people can throw at us and, and help them through it. And, um, and then finally, there's unconscious competence where we're almost invisible to the patient. And this is a tricky one. I guess it's sort of the self-actualization of competency in that our, um, it, to become invisible would be challenging. Say, for example, I was raised by African-American parents, but I'm white. Well, I may be culturally black, but my whiteness is still going to give me certain advantages and make me stand out to African-Americans, and they're not going to necessarily accept that. And so um, it's going to be very difficult for some who have not had a veteran's experience to fully relate, but that doesn't mean you have to have one to be consciously 
competent to, to have had those experiences. In some cases, not having those experiences makes you more objective. I found some of the more poignant comments uh, about treatment for veterans to be from people who are not. And, and then finally, when you're dealing with trauma, sometimes there's a sense of betrayal, and I'll, I'll spend a little bit more time on this later, but one of the things to mention up front would be that sometimes by wearing a uniform, I look like the people who may have given them the orders to do things that have caused some of these conflicts. And so I may not be the best first-line person for some of these folks to see. They may not feel comfortable with me, but um, just like a, um, I should be part of their healing process. And I liken it to being a male who works with battered women. Um, at some point, um, to, I could be a healthy part of that healing process for women to let them know that not all males do the terrible things that some of those other guys do. And, and so um, it, it's important to have that kind of experience. But um, it's really important when people are health-seeking to kind of eradicate what Yale Daniele calls the conspiracy of silence, which is this notion that we can't talk about it. And you see this a lot in areas like sexual trauma, where um, people uh, deny that things, certain things happened and that we're not allowed to talk about it lest you break the family secrets. Uh, and in some ways, warriors take on this idea as well. Um, but then what happens is when you're coming home to your family, that silence gets misinterpreted as perhaps dishonesty or holding back, and it can fuel cognitive distortions or ideas of infidelity, and it creates sort of a, an unstable balance in the family. So uh, seeking out help is very important. And then finally, to your comment about chronicity or, or long-term illness, it's much, much, PTSD, I want everybody to know, is very, very treatable. Um, otherwise, this would be really depressing work for guys like me. And um, the vast preponderance of people get better. And I tell veterans who've waited a really long time, the issue isn't going to be treating your PTSD. The issue is going to be dealing with the grief surrounding the pain that has been caused by the PTSD if it goes on for a long time. So say you've had it for 10 to 15 years and you've been divorced twice and your children won't talk to you now. Dealing with that after the cloud of the symptoms clear is going to be actually the long pole in the tent now. Um, and they'll swear on a stack of Bibles, oh, if you can get me back up on my feet, I'll deal with that. But often what I find is it becomes a familiar friend, to use those words carefully, and it becomes a hiding place where they don't really have to do that, and they can surround themselves by others who are doing the same thing. Um, and so to break through that barrier of silence, get them, getting them to talk early and often, not only helps us get to the symptoms before they become more severe and chronic, um, but but also really helps them maintain the family and, uh, and sort of avoid those situations of, of pending grief. So there's a lot to do in the course of the treatment, but um, people do understand. I think that's the key takeaway is that people will understand. Um, the problem is, is also we don't always know that it's happening to us. And I think last time I spoke about how I got escorted out of a bank because I didn't know how I presented myself to people. Right. Um, and, and, um, and so it's very, very confusing uh, when your gray cells get mushed together and your marbles get rolled around and it's very hard to describe and very hard to solicit support for. And this is going to be a kind of a crude comparison, but I used to teach special education and there, there were children that had intellectual challenges. Some had Down syndrome and some looked like you and I, but also had equal intellectual challenges. And when a child with Down syndrome walks into a store and looks for things, people offer help. 
But when um, somebody walks in who looks normal and seeks help, they often treat them as if they're kind of dumb. Um, and, and I think sometimes our psychologically wounded soldiers get treated more like the guy who doesn't look apparently wounded, unlike their physically wounded counterparts, which I wouldn't trade places with. But um, it's so that's part of this silence, too, that people don't see what they don't see. And so unless the warriors or their family members point out to them that they're struggling, um, sometimes they really don't know what's changed. And and then finally, some will say, well, I'm not going to do anything with my family until I'm Jeff, fully I need better. to hop in. I need to okay. hop in. We're going on a quick break. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll resume our conversation with Jeff Yarvis right after these short breaks. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. and ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on Toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Radio Network presents the Diva Download with Tracy and Tasha. If you think Diva is all about attitude and drama, think again. The Diva Download is the premier online radio program where girls of all ages, shapes, sizes, and colors get together to redefine what it means to be a diva so that all girls can discover their inner diva and develop a healthy sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Being a true diva means you're diverse. Involved, value-driven, and active. That's today's diva. If you want to celebrate the girl in your life through education, encouragement, empowerment, and entertainment, join us every week on Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time and celebrate the essence of being a girl only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Jeffrey Yarvis, and we are talking right now, or we were talking before the break, and one of his comments really caught my ear, and I want to ask you directly, Jeff. I loved it where you said sometimes wearing a uniform may be a bad fit initially for someone who we've been told a million times that another peer should be the one that can get it or understand it because civilian providers often don't know anything about the military culture. And one of the things that I I know is a problem, and perhaps you can shed some light on this, is that when there is a 
psychologist or social worker that it isn't quite a good fit and, and it doesn't feel good to continue treatment, so they drop out instead. Mm-hmm. They ask for a new provider. Well, the this has happened multiple times that the they're told, yes, you can find another psychologist or social worker, but you'll have to stay with them for a year. Now, why would that be done? And this has happened multiple times. This is not just anecdotal evidence. This is this has happened multiple times. So it doesn't appear as though the understanding of good fit is really being addressed by the system itself. And that could be limited to various uh, MTFs, but it is something that happens. What would you say about that? Yeah, I appreciate the comment. It's a great question. You know, I, I'm not sure what to say about it in terms of um, inflexibility. One of the things that's really preached to us is our ability to be agile, especially with limited resources. And so mm-hmm. typically what I'll do is I'll encourage the people who work for me um, is to you know, let the person know, look, you just happened to get me because I happen to be on triage today, but um, you don't necessarily have to stick with me. If you, and usually it's not uncommon, for example, if you're getting a physical exam you know, by a doctor, say, would you like a female provider if you're a woman and so on? Would you like a chaperone in the room? So on the mental health side, we're certainly able to ask those same kinds of questions. So once somebody says, you know, start sitting with me, I'll typically tell them, look, a couple things. One, if you're not comfortable with me because of uh, how I present uh, or the fact that I'm male or I'm an officer, let me know and I'll make sure I get you to somebody because we have women, we have civilians and so on. I'll also tell them if I'm not helping them probably within about four to six sessions, you know, where we're not seeing some tangible improvement or addressing some of their goals and some of the things I think we can do, I'll fire myself. So I, I give them a sense of urgency. You know, there's no ego involved with this. And then finally, if they're not sure about me or I see on their part that there's some apprehension about doing the work and they want to maybe put it off on the fact that they're not comfortable with me, and I'm not 100% sure about that, I'll ask them to stick with me for a couple of sessions, see how it's going, and then if they still feel that way, um, I'll, I'll move them along to somebody else. Or I'll be honest with them about where my limitations as a provider are. Is um, and that's and that's something that you know again as I mentioned with the eating disorders if somebody came and said that's my primary driver I might say well that's not my thing but I've not heard of a situation um, where um, we keep somebody for a year now you might be in a smaller post where there's only a couple of providers but even in places that are somewhat remote are one of the keys to solving that problem is working with our community. And right. so I, I know here at Fort Hood, we, we really partner with the local providers and try to maintain lines of communication within privacy you know, rules and, and uh, make sure that our soldiers can be taken care of if there aren't enough providers, say, in some area to do the work that we need done. Uh, mm-hmm. So where we have a shortage of a particular type. Um, but that would be concerning to me if I were... Uh, in charge of that area, and I was hearing those kinds of things, but I, I have not personally experienced that. I, I, so I have an interesting question. It's sort of tied to that a little bit, and it's also tied to some of the information that you shared with us before the break. Mm-hmm. And and that is, you know, so there's obviously the communication between the provider and the and the veteran, um, which is what we're talking about. But how do you engage the communication for the veterans? And you mentioned this earlier, where they are silent. And you talked about how you're engaging the community and you're, you're bringing together the providers. Um, how are you approaching this, the silent population, if you will? 
That's a really great question, Jason. Um, you know, and often you could assume that the family members and veterans that might need the help the most are often the ones that you don't see as much. And I kind of go about it with that underpinning, even if it may not be true. Um, this idea that we need to reach out, and so we do a few different things. We um, we have a quarterly behavioral health symposia with the local providers. We reach out into the schools and talk to parents and and. Uh, family members through a variety of venues. We have a number of community health promotions councils that involve leaderships, community leaders, uh, advocacy groups. We tend to have some informal meetings with our local partners uh, from the VA and other organizations that do work. And and then finally, and perhaps most importantly, advocacy groups. Uh, Not that we necessarily endorse one over another, but I'll give you an example. There's a group out there called Combat Paper. And these are a group of, it's a peer-led group that was uh, founded by Iraq and Afghanistan Marine veterans. And what they do is they encourage warriors to bring in a combat uniform. They turn the uniform into pulp and actually then paper and create artwork and essentially do a processing uh, I wouldn't call it therapy because they're not professionals, but they actually help veterans talk about their experience through their artwork, and then they go on the road. But, but this is a very powerful peer-led program, and um, those are veterans who've chosen not to go through normal channels. And so um, by liaisoning with a group like that, we were able to get to folks who might not seek traditional care, and we're able to kind of grease the skids if they're already outside the military and needing VA care or get them into our care at least plant the seed that this is work that can be done and, as I mentioned before, is highly treatable. But it's a great question. It's very, very interesting. It's, um, it's something that we actually experience w- with our nonprofit, too. The more that you engage with them on indirect fronts, um, the more that they tend to open up a little bit. And I've talked about that in previous um, shows. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's amazing how when you approach from different angles, how they sort of blossom in, in a way. Absolutely. Um, and it, again, it's really hard for, um, to, for folks to sometimes feel like they can talk about some of the things that they've seen. Um, you know, how do you describe the evils you've witnessed? Um, you know, there's a lot of idealism that goes into serving. You know, I, uh, I'm still an overgrown Cub Scout and like putting on my uniform and, and really haven't shed that ideal kind of feeling. But, you know, we, we portray ourselves a certain way. It's some of the things that we even romanticize. I remember my dad, who was a staff sergeant, used to say to me, it's not as romantic, as glorious as you think. But I still get a warm fuzzy when I put on my uniform, which is why I think I've made it to 29 years. But there's this <laughs> idea that, you know, for example, the Navy calls us a global force for good. And I think we are. We project our power. We project the idea of liberty and freedom to the world. So you go there perhaps as a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, and you think, I'm going to make a difference. And and sometimes, though, um, because of rules of engagement or just simply where you are in that place and time, um, it's very difficult. I had an officer say to me, there I was. I was on a couple UN missions and NATO missions, and a, and a soldier said to me, there I was with a UN beret. You know, all the best thinking in the world went into the creation of the UN. All these great nations put their best ideas together to help people, and it didn't mean a damn thing when I was there on the ground. And so they had these locus of control issues where they couldn't affect the things going on around them, and they were essentially scarred by seeing things and not being able to deal with that. And then how do you come home and say, boy, I thought I was going to go and maybe, you know, intercede with warring factions, and instead I saw dead children. And and do you, when your kid says to you who's the same age as a kid you might have seen who died, what did you do, daddy or mommy, over there? 
and it's even hard for you to talk about without getting really upset. And then you say, this is what I saw. Do you really, you really can't take that back. And then, of course, if it's not a matter of if, but when you're going to deploy again, maybe they're going to worry even more about you the next time. So you're trying to protect each other, but then, and you're also raised with this idea that loose lips sink ships or you maintain operation security. So you're not going to be inclined to necessarily share the details of your experience anyway. But then if you don't, let it out. It's kind of like getting having to go to the bathroom to be crude. I mean, if you don't let it out, it becomes painful and toxic. And so we want to have a few Linda Blair moments where we throw it up like pea soup a little bit. But that can be controlled. That can be done in a safe place. Um, and then I can become the keeper of your stuff. And I tell the veterans who come in to see me, look, you can come in and, I, and we can look at this anytime you want, but I'm going to put it up on a shelf with your name on it. And, um, and I want you to go back out and experience life again. Um, but it's going to be a different experience. You're not going to be exactly who you were before. Sometimes there's post-traumatic growth and sometimes we struggle. Um, everybody bears the burdens of their experiences differently. And sometimes they're not all burdens. It definitely, you have your spiritual moments too, where um, uh, the experience ends up being something that puts perspective on things that maybe you got too focused on in your the mundane aspects of living life behind, you know, you, you know, you maybe you got too spun up about getting audited by the IRS, and now you realize that's not that big a deal. I've seen some pretty incredible things, the best and worst of humanity, and I'm going to try to live my life differently now that I've seen that. Right, I, you know, Jeff, um, we're about two minutes from break, and I'm wondering if we can segue into. Um, the experience of the female warriors and sure. just a little intro and then following the break, we'll come back and dive in further. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, well, I guess as an intro, I think the way that um, women have experienced war now is quite different and, and the number of women serving is quite different. So while we, we've had women on the battlefield since the Mali pitchers were out there in, during the Revolutionary War, I think the experiences of women are different and how they experience trauma might be different, and we don't know a lot about them. There's some good emerging work that we can talk about, but I also want to share with you some of the the casework and and things that women have told me. Um, and although I'm a male, my wife says I'm the girl in the relationship, so maybe I can relate a little bit better to the women out there. But um, I um, I don't want to patronize anybody when I speak for them, but I can certainly share the intimate issues that have come up uh, that women have talked to me about. I, I think it is very interesting because men and women are different. Um, there can be the same training, but there can be uh, different revolving thoughts and perspectives as you go through things. So mm -hmm. we are going to take a look at the experience of women and their being on the battlefield and then coming home because I think that's a very interesting part of thing. And I'd also love to throw in after the break some of the familial um, perspectives that may be different from men. And so having a little bit of an understanding about what may be some of the differences might deal, might give both sides a better perspective on, on what is coming up. Does that sound like a good plan? That sounds terrific. Actually, I think that's a very important thing to talk about. Okay, because you know we're alike, but we're different, <laughs> and so yes. there there really is a lot to to follow up. And then, um, as we get later into the show, I also want to talk about this little studied population called the uh, Garden Reserve, because I think they have some unique experiences as well. So we are going to go on a very short break. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We're here with Jeffrey Yarvis, who works at Darnell Army Medical Center at Fort Hood, and we will be right back after these short messages. 
We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. The Woohoo Radio Network presents the Diva Download with Tracy and Tasha. If you think Diva is all about attitude and drama, think again. The Diva Download is the premier online radio program where girls of all ages, shapes, sizes, and colors get together to redefine what it means to be a diva so that all girls can discover their inner diva and develop a healthy sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Being a true diva means you're diverse, involved, value-driven, and active. That's today's diva. If you want to celebrate the girl in your life through education, encouragement, empowerment, and entertainment, join us every week on Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time and celebrate the essence of being a girl only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Before the break and during the break, we were talking about the experiences of women on the battlefield and transitioning back into the civilian environment, whether temporarily or um, separating. And Jeff, I'd love it if you could talk about some cases or experiences of women on the battlefield and and the differences and the commonalities. Absolutely. Well, of course, for women have served proudly with us for uh, the existence of the United States and have been on battlefields throughout war, the history of warfare. But I think it's key to mention that, for example, you know, around World War One, we only had about um, thirty-five thousand women in service, and they were mostly in administrative roles. And and you know, for example, up to Vietnam, we had about seventy-five hundred women deployed, mostly as nurses. But today we have had, uh, through Afghanistan, Iraq, and some of the surrounding countries, about 221,000 women have served in these theaters of operation. And they've served in new capacities. And even before uh, Title X changed and we had women now in combat roles, women were out there. And I think they were uh, huge drivers. And, you know, in a linear battlefield where the enemy's on one side and we're on the other and we're supposed to meet in the middle, the, the former doctrine was that they'll be back in the rear in support capacities, you know, running supplies to the combat folks and special operators up front. But in an asymmetric environment where there's no front and rear, 
you had uh, men uh, sometimes hunkered down in a Ford operating base and women running gun trucks filled with explosives and uh, beans and bullets, as it were, on some of the most dangerous roads in the world, uh, in places like Balad, Iraq, and, uh, and in Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. um, it, there, it was clearly recognized that women are out there and being able to do these things. And um, the key is, though, we don't know fully what their experiences are. And generally, you know, men and women experience the same mental health problems, but how they're treated uh, might be different. For example, when I leave home or when Jason leaves home and, and leaves their loved ones behind, some people might say we're a hero, but I've had some women tell me, you know, they wanted to do their duty and be, and they were as enthusiastic in their services, Jason and I are, and, um, and yet they may be told you're a terrible mom for leaving your children behind. And for example, I met our young Marine who uh, found out she was pregnant after she got to theater, and so she, you cannot be deployed while you're pregnant, and they sent her home right away. And she basically voiced her family, as soon as our child's old enough for daycare, I'm going back and I'm going to complete my mission, and had a really tough time not so much making that decision, but from her family. And uh, there are a number of women who join the service to um, get health care for their kids or take better care of their families, just like men do. Um, and yet... Um, they sometimes experience differences in the way that they're treated. So um, I found, though, that in talking to women who've served in these uh, positions like the lioness teams, who lioness teams were women who were meant to give a gentler face when soldiers were doing cordon and searches of, of Iraqi or Afghanistani homes. And, of course, that's all well and good until uh, things start happening on the ground and uh, the unit starts to have to fight. And then so women found themselves right next to their male counterparts pulling triggers and experiencing things like the Battle of Fallujah. And so um, what it ha- and it was interesting because initially the press even didn't know what to do with that. And so they were conspicuously missing from some of the early documentaries about uh, those individuals. And so um, they became a small but vocal group about um, how do we deal with these things? And one of the initial concerns that came up was when a woman presents with hysterical symptoms and I present with hysterical symptoms, do we get the same diagnosis? Um, Which is a really important question. Um, um, Interestingly enough, the word hysterical, I don't know if you know where that comes from, but it's from the Greek word for uterus. So even in the lexicon or rubric of our language that we use, there's a bias towards women. So mm-hmm. the good news is, though, um, in a study done by Lieutenant Colonel Angela Pereira, an Army social worker, uh, she found that women from three different conflicts were actually diagnosed properly with PTSD, for example, versus, say, borderline personality disorder. Um, because if you get that, if if you're treated as a hysterical woman versus a traumatized soldier, um, the disability and treatment implications and stigma are vastly different. So I was glad to hear that, and the study at least showed some initial indications that we do the right thing, and uh, which has generally been my experience. But I think there's there's going to be some inherent biases um, just in the way people view each other, uh, just because we are different on in in some level. But what I've also found in on the ground in combat, having served with women, is A, they're often the best soldiers out there because they've had to overcome some of these things. And B, if they're physically capable, nobody thinks any differently about them. And then, and, and then I suppose also the uniforms themselves kind of make us uh, indistinct in that you really don't see each other as, as men and women, but brother soldiers or sister soldiers. And, uh, 
and and to cross certain lines would almost be like finding my own sister attractive or something. I mean, there are certain things where people would go, oh, that's icky, and if that happens, um, um, people um, would probably frown on that greatly. But there are certainly situations where that probably does happen and people get in trouble. But I, I found their integration to be long overdue and uh, and had very positive experience in some of the best, if not the best leaders I've had were, were women out there on the battlefield and in garrison. I have a question, and sure. I want to talk about something that, that you mentioned earlier, and it's um, the idea about pre-deployment and how the needs are different. And you know, I think there is the, an effort to bring the team in a more cohesive way and, and sort of looking past gender biases and figuring out you know, who is really capable to do the mission, and, and that may be a female or a male or et cetera. But I think your, your analogy of the symmetrical versus asymmetrical battlefield is, is, is spot on. How, in, in your experiences, or, or maybe what, I should say, in your experiences, have you seen where um, services are starting to wrap around some of these, what I would consider uh, different needs or use cases for our female uh, veterans and deployed military members? It's a good question. So one of the examples I can give you is I, I worked with an all-female military police uh, unit when I was deployed. Um, and... Um, it was interesting. The way they presented to me was uh, I, they were brought to my attention because there was a little disruption on the camp that they lived on because the each camp has essentially a mayor or a senior commander. And that commander wanted, because there were only so many women on the camp, to merge them together with women from other types of units. Um, and this MP unit protested saying, we're not women, we're MPs. And wanted to be did not want to be segregated with other women or even have their unit integrity violated by, say, being mixed with nurses who have different missions. And, and also there was a, they needed to stay hardened because they were leaving the wire where some of these folks were not, whether they were men or women. You know, they didn't have time to think about their kids who were flip-flops to the shower. They were, you know, they were running dangerous missions. And, and all of these women were taller than me. I'm about 5'10", and they, and they were certainly looked like bigger and stronger soldiers than I was. They all chewed tobacco, and they sort of had a, a culture to themselves. Um, and so I think um, we're seeing um, you know, more people like that, where we're looking at somebody's capabilities uh, to go out and do the job. And these are probably the finest soldiers I've ever worked with. And I saw these individuals wade through literally hell on earth for about six months. I mean, some of the most horrible things I've ever seen. And, and actually, that may be where there are some differences. And in this particular deployment, I wasn't a father yet. And at one point, um, being a mental health guy, some of their senior leadership was upset because there was a, there was a combat stress reaction refusal behavior where they had responded to um, a woman holding up traffic, I guess she was delivering a baby actually in an intersection, and they actually got excited saying, we're going to be able to deal with life and not death for a change because they'd seen a lot of horrible things. And and then the woman gave birth to uh, a stillborn, and it, it devastated them because for a split second they had let that thick skin off. And they were having intrusions of this baby's face sort of being superimposed on their own children. And even though they knew their children were safe from a rational perspective back in the state of Washington where their unit came from, they, they, were, they said, I'm not going out until I talk to my kid and, and find out they're okay. And that was the first time it really leapt out to me that we're a little bit different. Um, um, but that said, as a father now, those images bother me looking back where at the time they didn't so much. And it was really a matter of 
how people relate. So there are going to be certain situations where women are going to relate to uh, motherhood or, or being separated from their children differently. Um, I've had women struggle with their children don't know them and they've missed this opportunity to bond. On the flip side, I've had men say to me, I wouldn't have had this awesome opportunity to bond with my children had my wife not deployed. So, you know, they're just like the men, they have to come home. But I think some of those attachment issues are, you know, perhaps a little bit more painful for them than their male counterparts. But from a physical performance standpoint, there are, there are definitely women out there who, you know, could kick my butt or your butt and, and, and do a great job. And so it really should be less about gender and, over, and, and more about physical performance. You know, I'd love to come back to the diagnoses thing. Are there studies being done that are taking a look at male and female diagnoses of PTSD and uh, if there are differences? Um, that's the only one that I know of that was done, and it was a small sample size, so there's room for um, error in terms of inference. But mm-hmm. um, I, I, it was very promising, though, because essentially it concluded that women do get diagnosed properly. And, and it in studies of just overall prevalence rates in men and women, um, the prevalence rates are about the same as well. And mm-hmm. the reasons why people experience those those symptoms are this, about the same. I did a study with about with Canadian peacekeeping veterans, and um, there was only about 120 women of the 1,600 people sampled. So again, you, it's hard to make leaps from that data, but those 120 women looked a lot like the 1,480 male counterparts that were in that study as well. Um, there was a slight, there's no kernel mustard in the parlor with this candlestick, and you're the most at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. So the study, for example, concluded that Single women who were married, who were not, I'm sorry, single women who were deployed two or more times between 18 and 24 were at the greatest risk for post-traumatic stress. But I say that carefully because almost a splinter behind them was the male group in the same exact, uh, with the same demographic. So um, I, I think generally speaking, it's the same, but there's this sense that maybe uh, they're more vulnerable than men. And I think that's just a long-held bias that, you know, has been part of the way we've talked about women in service or women as equal partners in our society um, for hundreds of years. Um, but but when you look on the ground, the, the, like I said, the, the best soldiers I've seen from boot camp on were women. Now, they also might be the worst soldiers. You know, I think there's more of a polarizing experience that um, oftentimes they're either physically the weakest or they're mentally and physically the strongest out there. And, and um, But the, the strong ones are the ones who tend to succeed uh, more so um, in, in these types of environments. And I don't mean just physically strong, but they've had to overcome perhaps harassment or, or these biases to prove they have an extra layer of proof to, to sort of steady themselves. And I've not really spent a lot of time talking to him, but passively observing it on, on that particular topic. But We're going on break now. Thank you. Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. 
Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. And find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. about the hound dog that participated in a 13-mile race in Elkmont, Alabama? According to Runner's World, the two-and-a-half-year-old hound dog named Ludivine was just horb-gorbling in her backyard when she heard the runners lining up for the trackless train track half marathon in the distance. Somehow, she found her way to the starting line and began sprinting alongside the other runners. According to Keith Henry, the winner of the race, Ludivine cut in front of him and the other runners several times. They had to be careful not to trip over the pooch. As it turned out, Ludivine crossed the finish line in seventh place with a time of one hour and 33 minutes. According to her owner, that was a pretty impressive showing for a normally scabberlatcher dog. Scabberlatcher is another word for lazy. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're listening to Jeff Yarvis talk to us about some variety of topics surrounding female warriors and the transmission of trauma. I'd love to talk about right now, if we could, women in the guard and reserve units, because I think that First of all, we don't often talk about Garden Reserve on our program, which we need to have a whole show on, I believe. Um, but perhaps you could address women in the Garden Reserve and, and how they make up a very important part of our uh, fighting force. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I do think we, we could talk more about the need to as a, as a military and as a community. Um, you know, before 1973, women only made up about 2% of the military. And there, right now, there's about 1.8 million female veterans in the armed services, mm-hmm. and about 200,000 active duty members. And, and on the, in the branches, for example, only 6% of the Marines on active duty are female. But to compare that, 31% of, of reservists or army reservists are women. And, um, and just also to give you a sense of, of the sacrifice that women made, 121 women have died serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, um, you know, it's, it's awful. And, you know, and you have to wonder if our society already has a tough enough time seeing wounded warriors come back, but to, I think they're probably less prepared to see people like Captain Don Hafiger, who lost an arm uh, in her service to her country. And then on the other hand, we have people like Monica Lynn Brown, who was the first Silver Star recipient during the global war on terror. So we have incredible heroes out there. Um, um, and so uh, they're often not given the attention that they deserve. But the reserves are... Uh, make up a large number. And of course, we used our reserve and National Guard in unprecedented ways to support this conflict and still do. Um, I think there are important implications uh, when we think about uh, both men and women serving from the reserve component. Partly, their expectations of service are different. I enlisted in the National Guard in the mid-80s. And during those times, there really was an expectation that you were going to get deployed. You might get sent out for domestic-related issues like, you know, a hurricane or a riot. Uh, 
um, or, uh, or some other kind of disaster, but there really wasn't an expectation of overseas deployment, or maybe you'd backfill an active duty unit who would actually deploy. Um, now that's quite different, and um, some of them go as units and some go as individuals, so there are concerns about you know cohesion and and getting used to being in a unit. But from a community standpoint, I think it's important to note that when a Guard or Reserve unit leaves, sometimes the community might lose its its school teachers, librarians, doctors, nurses. Um, so they're not only key members of their family, but these women and men are key members of their community. So the community can suffer if it's a small community when these units roll out. Um, the other thing probably to talk about is that what is a protective factor perhaps for an active duty soldier might be a source of vulnerability for a, rever- uh, for a reservist and vice versa. So, for example, sometimes I mentioned marriage as a, a factor for in that study from Canada. Um, but um, what we found is that length of marriage matters, um, and sometimes length of marriage can be a protective factor, and sometimes it can be a source of vulnerability. So a marriage that's ex- not really experienced that kind of uh, separation routinely like the Navy does might really struggle when you have a lengthy deployment after a 20-year marriage, or because you've been married 20 years, it might serve as a protective factor for your family, depending on the health of that relationship. So um, there are huge financial changes that occur sometimes when a reservist leaves. um, And then when they come back, um, not only do they come back to potential financial concerns, but um, the support they might get isn't quite the same. Now, reserve units may put attention on their specific unit, but for example, say you come back with post-traumatic stress disorder and um, you may have been retained on active duty to get treatment for some time, but at some point you have to transition back. And once you get back, say they were holding your job at Sears waiting for you to come back and, and now they've had their welcome home party for you. Well, the expectation is that you're going to get back to work. In fact, they may even resent on some level that they've had to kind of double tap your job in your absence. And you mm-hmm. go, wait a second, I, I know I'm back, but I have to go to the VA and get a bunch of my medical needs taken care of. And I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for that individual to convince their employers to give them that wiggle room. So there are a number of these kinds of issues that come up for these folks. Um, and there are dual military reservists where one might be mobilized for an exercise and the other is deployed. And, and and then so the expectation of their extended family may not be as clear. We're on active duty. We have to have a family care plan before we deploy for dual military families. It's complicated, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, uh, and there's less known about the implications of some of the things that I've mentioned and from a research standpoint. Well, it makes sense. It would be very difficult to study because we are using our garden reserve in unprecedented numbers, mm-hmm. and it is you know constant OPSEC even with the drawdown. Um, in terms of the protective factor and the length of marriage matters, that's pretty interesting because it, it makes perfect sense from a logical standpoint. Um, are there any uh, stats or studies that, that show if it's the female warrior going off to war versus the male, or is that more the societal um, perception? I think it's it's probably still the perception. Um, while hope is not a plan or a research point, I, I, I think just anecdotally that the the treatment of men and women are the same. The the, the uh, things that we do to survey men and women's health before, during, and after deployment um, have um, both face validity and um, a, um, a degree of reliability now in predicting 
how people should be diagnosed and what their uh, their prognoses should be. We find, for example, across international studies of veterans that if you present, for example, with a re-experiencing cluster of symptoms or what is known as flashbacks, without treatment, you're likely both in men and women to go on and develop the disorder within a year or two. Um, and so there's that need to get the help as soon as possible, but also the experiences generally are the same for men and women, and the treatments for them uh, are evidence-based both for men and women. It's just that the women are less studied, partly because their numbers in the military are smaller. And a lot of times, even when there is data out there, I, for example, when I first published my dissertation, we decided to leave the women out of it simply from a statistical standpoint. It was harder to make inferences. So my dissertation chair, who held some of those biases close, said, well, let's not include them for your, your dissertation. Later, after I graduated, I went on to publish the, the study about the women because I felt that they needed to be included, but I wasn't going to not get my doctorate because I couldn't include them. But there's this idea that, you know, well, we know things about them, but the numbers are small, so they don't lend themselves to empiricism as well. You know, And I still think there's value. Like Angela Pereira's study only had 38 women in it, but but that's 38. Now we know something about women that we didn't know before. Um, and so they, I think there's heuristic value in, in studying any number of people, even if it's a couple of case studies that suggest that certain things are true. Now, I've heard this as a rumor. Do not know if it's true. These are anecdotal comments only received um, when talking to a number of veterans, is that women tend not to ask for help as much. Um, they are quieter and less likely to self-identify as a veteran, and hence sometimes they are falling into a trap where the homeless numbers could be perhaps higher. The children that they're taking care of um, may be in a more at-risk situation, mm-hmm. mainly because of, of a, a maybe it's again societal, I'm not certain, but can you address any of that? Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I mean, I've talked to my colleagues in the VA community, and they say there's a shifting demographic where they're seeing more women uh, and sometimes women with children in homelessness that are, are veterans and, and also more male and female officers in homelessness. And I wonder if some of that is also tied to where do veterans go to get help? Like, you know, do they know about groups like Jason's or, you know, the old, you know, the older veterans, I'm a member of like the American Legion and the veterans of foreign wars. And, and, you know, those are aging groups of veterans who, you know, they would come together at these halls and, and drink and talk about their experiences. And there weren't women in those organizations. They have an auxiliary, and many of the retired spouses are, are still participants. But I don't know if today's men and women necessarily can fully relate. And so you have groups like the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America who do different types of things, mm-hmm. like uh, outdoor experiences. And there are probably fewer and fewer women who would know, I, I suppose they know these organizations exist, but they'd be like, where would I fit in an organization like that? I, I can see where there's a, a need almost out there to have something like these peer-led groups for women founded by female veterans. And um, and they may indeed exist out there, um, but but not to the, the degree or notoriety of some of the groups like the combat paper group I mentioned, which are open to women. Um, and then I think there needs to be recognition by male counterparts to put the word out that, especially now that they're literally fighting shoulder to shoulder with each other, that you are welcome in these groups, that your experiences are indeed similar to ours, and we want you there. Um, I know for being in a medical unit, you know, there are, we like, I went to war with the 30th Med Brigade, and we have, we have, um, you know, 
like an alumni association, and the women are very active in that. So, you know, if if they know that they can reach out to us, and we still maintain close bonds, you know, either whether it's through social media or or by getting together sometimes uh, to you know talk about our experiences and the level of cohesion in that experience is just like when it's an all male unit from my armor Jeff, days. Jeff, we have uh, just about two minutes left here until we have to close out this amazing show that we've done. That thanks to you, but. Um, just want to round out some final points here. Um, if you could leave our audience with a few things, um, what would they be? Maybe debunking some, some themes or some discoveries that you've had along the way. That'd be great. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for having me as well. Um, one that, you know, again, this, the PTSD is highly treatable. Seek help that you're not alone in this. Um, that we do know less about women, but I encourage women uh, to come forward. Their their invisible wounds are no less important, and uh, um, and that we all need together to break that conspiracy of silence to get the help we need. Um, um, that those experiences can be transmitted to our family members and lead to other negative consequences, just like we transmit our healthy stuff. So it's important if you're thinking about it not as a veteran, but simply even as a parent. And then that the community needs to understand uh, that you can't take a fever without using a thermometer. You can't find a fever without using a thermometer. So ask the question, have you ever deployed? Is anybody in your family deployed? And so the children in those families or the spouses are treated like uh, members of a deployed family or a veteran's family and not something, you know, a dysfunctional family that just has problems. And, and um, uh, I think when you ha- you're cognizant of these things, we'll do some great work together. And then finally, you know, we can't do this alone as a military or, or as a VA. I think we need our community partners. We need these peer-led groups. And then you have to get the right fit for yourself. As Linda said, you know, goodness of fit is very, very important. Jeff, I thank you so much for all of this wealth of information. We touched on a number of topics this morning, and it's always a pleasure having you on the program. I love that you talked about the advisability of early treatment, because before it gets chronic, it's going to be a lot easier to fix. So thank you so much for being with us today. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We're here with Jeffrey Yarvis out of Fort Hood. Thank you again, and we will talk to you again next week. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 